The Valley Hub Stories podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast has been recorded, Gumbangia Country. We value and respect their continuing connection to and care of country throughout time. Welcome to the 10th episode of the Valley Hub Stories podcast. I'm looking out my window today at blue sky, just peeking through after several days of rain. And it feels like a nice metaphor for the topic of this episode. Today, I'm talking to Leonie from Barefoot Funerals on death, dying and journeying through this process with loved ones. I'm positive that Leonie has a special place in the families she's supported over the years with a radical acceptance, openness and willingness to meet people where they are. Leonie works to ensure supporting families and farewelling loved ones is accessible and memorable in the most intimate and meaningful of ways. This is an episode in which we talk about many things, from how the needs of families differ right down to the details of caring for and moving a deceased person's body. We acknowledge that some people may not be in a place where they're okay with hearing these details, in which case we understand and look forward to having you next time. If you need support after listening to today's episode, you can contact Lifeline on 131114. For now, we wish you warmth and an open heart as you listen to this episode. Thanks for joining us today, Leonie. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So can you tell me a little about yourself? Oh, about myself? Oh, <laughs> I've lived in the Bellingen area. My grandparents are actually from Nambucca. My grandmother and grandfather are buried in Nambucca Cemetery, the beautiful one that has the great views. My dad's ashes are scattered up there, but don't, you know, don't let the council know. And so I've been living in the Bellingen area. I grew up in Brisbane. I moved down here about 30 years ago to raise my two children my oldest now has two children, bringing them up in Bellingen. So you have, you, how would you refer to it? Is it a funeral company? How, um, what's the correct term? Well, you know, the, the mainstream term is a funeral home. Uh, I more think of it as sacred death care. Yeah. So Barefoot Funerals is yep. the name of your business. So yes. tell me how that started. Uh, so Barefoot Funerals, I've always been passionate about the environment. I uh, did work for a mainstream funeral director. I was a celebrant as well. So I worked for a couple of different funeral directors doing funerals. And to stand there for me in a chapel reading from a script and not really having that connection to the person who passed away or who died, I like to say that they've died, they haven't passed away, I just felt there was a more meaningful way of doing it. And for me, I wanted to take the mystery out. So it really started back when my uncle died quite a number of years ago. I went to his funeral and it was up in Brisbane. It was quite a nice funeral, very sad music, you know, to make you cry. And he got lowered. I I think I was about 12. He got lowered. You know, his coffin was up there in the front and they didn't have the curtains, but he got lowered and I thought he was going to hell. That was, I was totally convinced that that that's where he was going. And I, for years afterwards, I wondered what happened to him. Where did he go? It was the big mystery. So I'm not really good at having mysteries in my life. I like to have things solved. So once I solved that mystery, I went, 
we should not have mystery around death. It's an everyday occurrence. It happens in everybody's life at any given time. Uh, None of us are promised tomorrow. So part of my wanting to start Barefoot Funerals was about taking the mystery out of what happens. I want to come back to the language you used around around death, the terminology. But firstly, can you run me through the services that you provide? So we do, you know, cremations and burials, same as everybody else. We do a lot of home funerals. We do a lot of vigils. So vigils is uh, generally where the person who has died comes back to their home and they're laid out on a cold plate and the family looks after them. Legally in New South Wales, you're allowed to keep your person at home for five days. So most families don't keep them for five days. That's a fairly extended period of time. And it is very tiring to, you know, have your deceased person that you stay with and look after. So a lot of families keep them anywhere from four to three days, generally is the average time. And then, of course, they get buried or cremated when the family's ready for that to happen. I'm really interested to hear about about that that home care following yep. death, but let's let's talk about the terminology that you referenced before. So, why do you prefer to use the term that the person has died? So, I definitely you because that's what's happened. <laughs> they they've died, passed away. I I do try and be very mindful of the language of the family, and I never contradict the family if they go, "Oh, I've lost my dad." But when somebody says that to me, I always go, oh, is he in the forest? Where, like, you know, have you lost him or has he died? So I get a little confused. Died has died and passed away. I don't know. There's something really, it's it's a gentle terminology, but I do like the word, you know, we don't generally say my dog passed away. It's generally my dog died. So in the animal kingdom, we generally accept that something dies but in the human world, we like to think that they've passed away mm. when they've died. Yep. Yeah. So I guess when you're getting to know a family through this process and, and acknowledging the language that they used and the, and the rituals and, you know, how are you supporting them through that process to establish the rituals around death and, to, and particularly in the context of that, that home care process? Uh, so when I meet with a family, often I'll go to their home uh, so I get a feeling for who they are and then I just, you know, it's really through conversation. It's about asking them who was this person who died. Tell me about your dad, granddad, grandmother, whoever it is, sister, auntie. When I speak to the person and find out what they're about, I, I ask them do they have any rituals or ceremonies you know, it can be as simple as, well, we all brushed our teeth and sang kumbaya together overnight. That's a ritual. There's no separation between, you know, our everyday living and having a ritual. Cooking dinner every night at five o'clock is a ritual. And so instead of having separation around this is ritual and this is every day, I really try and see that every day is the ritual and that's waking up and so it's about conversation and being open, being really open to who that family is and if that family is a Catholic family and they want to do the big church service, that's their ritual that they're comfortable with, that's their ceremony and so I honour that because that's their belief system. I don't try and bring my belief system 
into their world unless they ask me, what would you do here? And it can be as simple as we're going to light candles, we're going to have some incense, and we're going to sprinkle beautiful flowers. You know, it's as simple as that. It doesn't have to be some complicated needing to build some, you know, two-day mandala and have drumming and people singing. It, it's about the simple things that make meaning. And I always come back and I ask that family, what makes meaning for you? So when you're supporting a family, I gather that at some point you may have families contacting you who've who've not um, yet lost, <laughs> in air quotes, their person or, yeah, that their family member hasn't hasn't died yet. I yep. just went to use that terminology, <laughs> I didn't know. I? It's so funny how it's, it's so ingrained in our culture, isn't it's it? It's entrenched. So, yeah, I, ga- I gather that you have some clientele who or some individuals who are in that situation too. I'm kind of curious to know what supports you might have in place for those families who are in that process still. So generally if a family member, so the first thing I'll ask the family, if the person is still alive, do they have contact with Pal Care, Palliative Care? Uh, we have uh, the Nambucca Maxville Hospital, Bellingen, Coffs Harbour. We have fabulous palliative care services uh, who come into the home and, and help manage, you know, all the medications and all those things that I have no clue about. I would never advocate coming to me for medication advice. And I do, I really like them to be hooked into the palliative care team because they can ring them and find out, you know, if somebody gets into trouble or the pain isn't being managed, they can ring them and get it managed immediately. So that is always my first port of call. 95% of families would be hooked into the Palcare service. If they're not and they're trying to do it alone, I say, please ring your hospital and get in touch because legally there's certain bits of paperwork we need to be able to when that person does die, there's certain bits of paperwork I need. I can't just go and, you know, Mrs. Smith around the corner can't ring me and go, oh, my husband's just dropped dead. Can you come and pick him up? No, I can't. Mm. <laughs> there's things that need to be in place so that it's safe for the community and for them. So I will put them onto the Pal Care team. I want to know about that process. Yep. But I also want to talk about, I guess, the barriers to people seeking help because you know, is there perhaps somewhat aged understanding of the palliative care system in in that possibly, you know, I guess particularly the older generation are concerned that they're going to be forced into hospital yes. when their preference is to die at home? Yes. Do you think that that's still quite a, an outstanding concept? I think it's probably a belief as more and more people speak about it. I mean, I have attended to families that – may even be in hospital and have not been referred to the pal care team. And I go, how come you haven't been referred to the pal care team? It uh, sometimes may be lack of knowledge with the doctors and, and nurses. They may not know that that, that uh, exists because hospitals seem uh, very much to run in their own little sections, you know, emergency or whatever. So I I definitely advocate to be speaking palliative care you can go online, you can Google palliative care. So, you know, I think we all have a fear of ending up in hospital, dying in hospital, you know, so-called alone. And there's nothing wrong with going to hospital if people feel more comfortable there. My mother died in a hospital in Bellingen in the palliative care section uh, and she did not want to come home. 
I was desperate to bring her home, but she was like, I feel really safe here. So, you know, her generation feels safe in hospital with the nurses. She had 24-hour call buttons and, you know, something she may not have had with me if I'd slept through the little ringing bell. Mm. So I think the older generation sometimes might feel more comfortable and if that's what's right for them, I think that's good that that's what they take advantage. But those families or those people that want to be at home, doctors should know about, I'm pretty sure most mainstream doctors know about palcare and it's just having the conversation and I think that's you know I guess that brings me to it's really important to have the conversation if you have older parents or somebody who's sick who may be facing death don't be afraid of the conversation don't deny that this is happening because I think that's really hard for the person who is dying because then they don't have a safe space to talk about I'm scared or I'm excited or, you know, I wonder what happens or I'm going to hell or they don't have the the ability to have those last conversations that are so important. So I think talking, you know, talking, Palcare does advertise, you know, I've seen ads come up for palliative care and I think the more we call on palliative care and the more people show that they need this service, the more nurses they'll put on for home care and the more ability we'll have to bring this back into the home. There's also the new, well, I won't call it new, it's actually really super old. They call themselves either end-of-life practitioners, death doulas, death walkers. There's a lot of different names and they're private people working in the sector that go into the homes. They don't do medications, they're not a nurse, but they help inform the family and they can help make plans and put them onto the right services. They can help guide them. They might make food, start a roster with families. So so similar to a birth doula. Yeah, or similar to a birth doula. doula. Yeah. yeah. Same doorway, birth, yeah. death. Yep. Yep. We all go there. Yep. <laughs> so tell me the process if somebody dies at home. Uh, so you mean without palcare? Let's do both for the sake of the information. I'm okay. curious. So uh, if they're a palliative care person, uh, they would ring the palcare team and a nurse or a doctor would come out and they would pronounce the person dead. There's certain things that they have to do and they would fill out a, what they call a life extinct form and that's what happens. It's life extinct. Yeah. And once that life extinct form is filled out, we can then go in and, you know, support the family whether they want to keep the person at home for longer or whether they want to allow us to take them to our premises. Mm. So it's up to the family. So that's a pretty simple process. If they're working with a pal care team, they've got the expected death at home form from the doctor. That means that doctor has been seeing that person and they are expecting the death mm-hmm. and the family's aware and, you know, has support. If somebody just, you know, drops dead or passes away really quickly with no pre-warning, uh, dependent on pre-existing conditions, so they would call the ambulance normally and the ambulance people and possibly the police would come in, not not every time, it just depends. So if you've got a 95-year-old that drops dead suddenly, obviously they're going to have some type of pre-existing condition mostly and so the ambulance service might go, he's had a, a major heart attack and sometimes they'll call in, you know, the funeral director. Uh, there are funeral directors that have the... So if, say, a 35-year-old dropped dead, generally 
the ambulance service would say they need to go to the coroner. So there's particular funeral directors that have the contract to come and pick that person up. They'll take them to the local hospital, whether that's normally Coffs or Nambucca. Then the court decides if they go down for an autopsy and they get taken generally to Newcastle where the autopsy and then the family can start making arrangements for that person. They can go to any funeral director they'd want. They don't have to go to the one that picked them up originally and they can go to any funeral director and go, I'd like to make arrangements. And then that funeral director will make arrangements to bring them back from Newcastle up to their premises and then go ahead with burial or cremation. So interesting. So if you have received a call in the middle of the night, I imagine sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> what is the process on your end? So I get out of bed and have a cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So someone has died at home, they've called you. So yeah, if, get up and have your coffee. <laughs> what if, happens if, next? If they've called me and Pal Care's involved and I always say to them, you need to ring pal- palliative care to have somebody come out and do that life extinct. I cannot go into I can go and support them, make them a cup of tea. I can't touch that person until palliative care comes in. Often they might have, you know, the Nikki pumps or whatever in them that helps uh, reduce, it, it delivers the medication on a regular basis. And so generally when pal care comes in, they take all those out because those pieces of equipment are very expensive. So I try and work closely with the palliative care team but they have to come and do that life extinct form before I can take the person away. So if the if the family are, you know, going, oh, my God, we're not comfortable, can you come over? I'll go and sit there. I'll have my cup of coffee <laughs> and then I'll go and sit with the family until pal care come. If pal care team has already been there or rings me and says, yes, we've, you know, done the, seen the person and we've done the life extinct form, then I'll get my car and my trolley and off I trot to the family. Mm. Yeah. So this sounds like a very clinical way to, to to term it, but I can't think of a better phrase. But once you've retrieved the body, mm-hmm. what happens then? Uh, so dependent on whether it's they're keeping their person at home, but if they're not keeping their person at home, they'll come back to our premises and then we wait for instructions from the family about whether they want, you know, make sure the eyes and the mouth are shut so that, you know, it's, and we do that very gently. We don't, you know, do mainstream practices generally. Can, and you, talk, can you talk me through that? Because that sounds really interesting. <laughs> Look, everybody has a different way. You know, some mortuary and generally morticians do this work. So they may sew the lip shut to keep the mouth closed. Some morticians, I've heard that they super glue the eyes together to keep the eyes closed. Some people sometimes, you know, if the person uh, may expel uh, liquids, they may put uh, cloths and things in orifices to make sure that that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, they're gentle. There's nothing wrong with those practices. There's eyelid, little eyelid caps that you can put in that, you know, keep the eyelids closed. I use 20 cent pieces and I tie the, the mouth up with a nice soft cloth. Yeah. Mm, it's just my way. Okay. Yeah, but there's still no guarantee that those eyes and mouth will be closed. So, you know, you just have to hope for the best. And mostly it uh, once you do that because, you know, they go through a process of rigor mortis and different things as the body starts to break down. So uh, generally they stay closed and the eyes – my mother's didn't freak my, freak my uncle out. <laughs> 
and you know the eyes it's it's an interesting thing after somebody's died watching how the eyes change mm-hmm. and you know that that person has absolutely left the building yep yep so and the eyes change as the days go on cuz they lose moisture so there's nothing you know, spooky or woo-woo about it. It's just, you know, something natural that happens within anybody and see that in a cow too. Yeah. So, yeah, we're no different. Mm. Well, I guess we are. (laughs) Some of us have spots. So when we are talking about a family who have not cared for their loved one post-death at home, do you find that the large percentage, once that person's body has been removed from the home, have sort of pack that away and, and don't want to see the person again or does it kind of vary in terms of that that journey? That's That really varies. Yeah, there's no one answer to that. Some people would like to view their person once they're washed and dressed and some people don't want to see them again. It just depends on, oh, God, the variance is so varied. It depends on your belief system. It depends on, you know, was this a really long journey? I find families that have kept their person at home till the time of death and they've sat with them for a few hours over a cup of tea and gotten used to the idea that this person's gone, often they don't need to see their person again because they feel really done. Whereas those people that may have had an unexpected death, they kind of want to know, well, you know, are they really dead? I need to see them. I need to, you know, know what's happening here in the process. So it's such a varied it's a 50-50 thing. Mm. Yeah. Do you have any particular funerals, families that stand out to you? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. 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 Have you experienced the death of many young people? We have. We live in a small community and being a small community, we have a variety of deaths and we had a period of time a couple of years ago where We had a lot of young people and they weren't necessarily, you know, we think of young people when they die, they suicide, but these weren't necessarily uh, suicide, but they were definitely unexpected. And, you know, it's a a tragic thing. And I know, you know, the common uh, phrase is we're not supposed to bury our children and I do believe that we are not supposed to bury our children. But unfortunately, more parents do bury their children. And so having an understanding of, you know, that that I'll live every day, you know, as it is your last and speak all those words you need to speak really become a reality when you work in the industry or work around the industry and probably nurses and doctors and anybody in any type of field of healthcare would absolutely, or anybody that's had a person who's died, would I really understand that in a way that if you haven't been touched by that. But I know that I, I mean, I don't live every day as my last. <laughs> I, you know, I would love to say that I do, but I don't. But I never leave anything unsaid. There is nothing to, I can't think of one person in my life, including my children, that I have anything left to say. That's a really good takeaway. If you could give one piece of advice to people who are listening and thinking, this sounds like a journey that I would like to take with a loved one or perhaps for themselves, what's the first place that you would start with them in terms of planning? What are their options? We talked about, um, I guess, that uh, viewing funerals through that eco lens. 
but also I'm thinking about the costs associated with traditional funerals and that can often be quite overwhelming, particularly when there's an unexpected death. Yep. So can can you talk me through what the options are for people? So if they're wanting to take the journey at home, and I would, you know, encourage everybody to have the conversation. It doesn't matter. I've encouraged my children. They have not done this. I've got a 24-year-old who has two children. I go, you need to make your will. You need to make your advanced care directive, which gives, do you want, you know, what type of medical intervention do you want in the case of an accident or, you know, do you want to be on life support for 10 years? Like, don't make somebody else make that decision for you. You know, I would hate to turn around and have to make that decision for my child and take him off life support. I would rather know what his wishes are. So he hasn't done that yet, but every person should do that, particularly as you age. You you have choices. That's the big thing. I'd like to have that tattooed on my forehead. <laughs> I do not want to be on life support. So that's a good place to start with the with the medical thing. But the other place to start is do you want a funeral? You don't have to have a funeral. You can simply have cremational burial. Do you want to do your funeral at home on the headland, on the beach, by the river, which is more cost effective than possibly going into a chapel? Do you want your family to stand up in front and talk about you instead of having somebody that doesn't necessarily know you? Do you want a cardboard coffin versus, you know, an MDF that's full of plastics and glue? You know, you don't have to have cardboard. There's nothing wrong with cardboard, but you can do woven, you can do pine that's made here in Australia, grown here in Australia. So there's a lot of options out there. Obviously, the the most cost effective is cardboard. You can paint it, you can decorate it, put your handprints on it, you can cover it with paper, pictures, collages, and that can be a family affair. That's a beautiful way to commemorate. It's beautiful. I've had many fa- – and, you know, some families sit there and go, oh, you know, putting – and, you know, I'm going to sit here and say it. people go, oh, does it look like a cardboard box? And I'm like, yeah, it does. <laughs> it just looks like a big cardboard box. But there's nothing wrong with them. Obviously, if you're going to do a service and it's raining, you don't really want to be in a cardboard box, I will say that. Yep. They are not weatherproof. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want to get your cardboard box four years in advance and decorate it because, you know, rats love cardboard. So there's some practical considerations. You know, I wouldn't want to – and also size considerations. So if it's a bigger person, particularly tall men, you can't fit in a cardboard box. They're six foot long. I wouldn't like to put anybody over about 90 kilos, although they're weighted up to 160. I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't want to put 160 – kilo person in this, it just doesn't feel safe. Yeah. So size limitations with cardboard, but there's nothing wrong with them. This might be a silly question, but do they go into the ground the same way? Like lowered? A cardboard? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no different, no different at all. Yeah. We can only at this point in Australia very horizontally. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I wasn't, I wasn't th- so much thinking about the orientation but more yeah, I guess that, that durability aspect of being lowered. They're quite durable. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. Oh, interesting. Unless you're in the pouring rain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so interesting to talk about, isn't it? And as a society, we don't we don't talk about it on we a don't. regular basis in no. a way that is intimate because it is a provocative issue. It is an emotive issue. It's an emotive issue. It shouldn't be a provocative in- issue because it does happen to everybody. Mm-hmm. It's like it's, it's our co- birth and death 
let's forget about the taxes thing. We always say birth, death, death and taxes, but really birth and death we know happen to us. So, you know, because it has gone behind closed doors, it has been outsourced and there's nothing wrong. I'm not sitting here advocating that every family needs to do a home death and every family needs to do a home funeral because it's not right for some people. And, you know, that's where funeral directors like myself and other funeral directors come in. We can come in, guide as much as they need. We can do everything if that's what they need because, you know, some families are really distraught and they just don't have capacity to hold that space. It's a big space to hold. Mm. So, you know, but I advocate those families that want to dip their toe in, even if it's just decorating grandma's casket, you know, that's all they want to do. That's great. But I, I do think it's in the doing and whether that's as simple as decorating the coffin or I'd like this poem read, you know, it's in the doing that I think leads us into a place that we can have. And I don't like to call it good grief. I've always grappled with the whole good grief movement, but we can have a gentler grief knowing that we have done what we can for our person. And whether that's just writing a few words for their eulogy or putting together the slideshow, I know there's families that have participated rather than handing everything over. I know they step into their grief going, I, I managed to do this. Yeah. And I think that's really important because grief is just, you know, it's a long, slow, you know, it's not the three day process. You get three days off work. And I think, you know, we really need to, and they, you know, even in the funeral industry, they give their their people three days if somebody dies. And I'm like, do we not know? It takes more than three days to plan a funeral for a start. And it's months. It takes months to start to feel any type of, oh, I can go out and, you know, be in public and, you know. I mean, if it's, you know, your great uncle twice removed that you've met twice in your life, it's a different matter. But if it's a close family member, Grief lasts a long time and it's heavy and it's tiring. So to enter that space knowing you've done what you can, whether you have given them the direct cremation but decorated their casket or whether you've spent days with them, you can enter a space. And that's where I think good funeral workers come in who help lead that person and really go, what do this, does this family need to help them move forward in a gentle way? That feels like a really nice place to finish the conversation. Conversation extinct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Leody, so much. It was just really interesting to hear about the process and really just to to reinforce that people do have choice. They do. And, um, it can be a really empowering process as well as a really sad and grief-filled journey. So thank you for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Valley Hub Stories podcast. Let us know what you think by reaching out to thevalleyhub underscore envy or email us at info at Until next time, go well. Go well.